Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And welcome back to this special two-part episode of Ukraine The Latest from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. In the second half of our seminar discussion, we spoke about Judaism, Ukraine and Israel, and dip our toes into American politics and support for Ukraine. Before we return to our panel of experts, we must note that this podcast was recorded before the 7th of October attacks on Israel by Hamas. We think it's still important, fruitful and useful to discuss Israel's relationship with Russia and Ukraine and the history in the region. As you will hear, I was especially interested in the news surrounding the pilgrimage made by Hasidic Jews to Uman for Rosh Hashanah in September. Thanks, as before, to all of our panellists. Here's part two of Ukraine The Latest from Georgetown University. The next part of this podcast, we want to talk about the Jewish experience in Ukraine. It's been a subject I've really wanted to do for a very long time, because especially with the election of Zelensky as a Jewish man, it's something which is, of course, at the forefront of modern conceptions of a multicultural, multi-faith Ukraine. I mean, we've seen Umerov, the new defence minister in Ukraine, is Muslim, Crimea Muslim. But let's talk about the Jewish experience. We talked about memory wars earlier. What should our listeners know, if they're not familiar with, about the Jewish experience in Ukraine over the last hundred years? And how has that memory of that changed, thinking about the sort of the shifting narratives that we're seeing now? It's a, a huge, a big topic. But um, I want to state that the simplest thing is that Ukraine is a very important geographical area for Jewish life, for Jewish culture, heritage. So... 
any kind of ism that's important for Jews, you know, being Hasidic life or Zionism and people like Zev Jabotinsky, Golda Meir, or Yiddishism, you know, commitment to Yiddish culture and language. Sholem Aleichem is also like people that have roots in Ukraine. And of course, if you go to Bolshevism and the revolutionaries, all important movements and big names, Jews that embraced one or other type of ism, they all like are there in the territory of Ukraine. So people who contributed to art and culture and Chaim Bialik, and so that should kind of be clear that it's a rich layer of history and social political life. But of course, what kind of overshadowed the history of Jews in Ukraine in the last 100 years, two very important, prominent events. And this is up actually until very recently. Those like two dramatic events were considered to be the main points in the history of Jews in Ukraine. And this is the civil war when over 100 of Jews suffered, were like slaughtered during pogroms in Ukraine. And the truth is also like very sad, but also very clear that the biggest portion of the pogroms was done by the Ukrainian nationalist and the Simeon Petlura. So this is like one very strong association the Jews kept with them since those years, in 1918 and 1921. And then Holocaust. Again, we are talking, in this case, we're talking probably as many victims as 1.5 million Jews died at the hand of Nazis and Ukrainian collaborators. So these are like very dramatic histories that existed in the life of Jews and their descendants. And for quite a long time, scholars and descendants of Jewish community, they are talking about like two solitudes. They're talking about Ukrainians and Jews kind of existing in their own worlds and not being connected to each other. But of course, this is not the whole story, because if you go beyond the like, big grand narratives, you do see that even in the interwar era, if we look at the intermarriages, we do see that it's an increased uh, intermarriage between Jews and Ukrainians, like triple fold. So we do see integration and, and Jews having like, important roles in society. But what's happening nowadays because of the war, what's very interesting, you do see a willingness of Jews in Ukraine, but also Jews outside Ukraine, to make a step forward towards the Ukrainian nationalism and kind of a willingness to be maybe more tolerant on ideas and concepts and even like individuals that are still probably outside the realm for Jewish individuals. Like we're talking about people like Bandera, of course, Shuhevich. But to give you just an example, the slogan, Slava Ukraine, Glory to Ukraine, which was, you know, anathema as a nationalistic slogan. Now it seems like it's embraced, at least in part, by some Jewish individuals in Ukraine as an okay thing to do. So they somehow feel united in this like common civic identity as inhabitants of Ukraine because of the threat and that Russia is posing to their life and because of the suffering that Russia is inflicting on everybody and each and every person who lives in Ukraine. So these are like significant 
changes that we're experiencing now between Jews and Ukrainians that we probably never seen before in history. And also, yeah, it's all because of Russia's actions. At the same time, what is also happening, we do see that at least now we know that at least 15,000 Jews left Ukraine. These are big numbers because the entire community now, the estimate is that there are maybe like 40,000 Jews in Ukraine. So if they keep leaving the country in such big numbers, we may see a Ukraine really without any Jews. That would be a total novelty in history. And the truth is that, of course, like Israel is supporting Jews in their effort to immigrate and offering all kinds of support and networks. So it's probably even to an extent easier for them to move permanently somewhere else compared to other Ukrainians. Just to maybe pick up on the context that Diana was talking about, you know, just as a as an educator here, I teach a course on Zionism. I teach, you know, and uh, our books need to be updated, you know, but also it's a question of identity. And, it, it, and you know, simple phrases like you mentioned, Jabotinsky, a Russian Jew from Odessa. You know, what does this mean in this context? Moshe Sharet from Kherson, a Russian Jew, you know, from Kherson. And perhaps you would describe Zelensky's forebears the same way, maybe even just a few decades ago. You might have described them the same way, but, you know, as... President Zelensky himself said in his sort of emotional speech on the eve of the war, things have changed. And I mean, maybe just to give a little color of what's happening today in Israel, it's quite interesting. Now it's almost the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And of course, there is a very, and it's become very famous now, this pilgrimage that's traditionally a Hasidic pilgrimage, but it's actually quite trendy inside Israel now. It's a strange phrase to use when describing Judaism, but sort of born again, Jews, you know, and other celebrities and others like to do this pilgrimage in Uman. And it's become this huge thing. And they're even now in the context of the war, they're expecting over 50,000 to come. And this has become a huge issue right now because of the current coalition in Israel, which is 64 seats out of 120. Seven of those seats are, well, even more, probably closer to 18, but, but seven from the sort of Ashkenazi you know, Hasidic strain, enough to topple the government, essentially. For them, this is almost an existential issue that their followers and that their adherents are allowed to make this pilgrimage. And it was a whole big back and forth about the treatment of Ukrainian refugees and their access to health insurance. Anyway, I don't need to get too much into the details of all of this, but essentially it was a negotiation between Netanyahu and Zelensky to allow for it. I only bring it up really because of what Netanyahu said, which has caused a firestorm. And I wrote it down so I wouldn't get it wrong. But he said this in the cabinet meeting. He said, if you do go to Uman, be careful, you know, and exercise caution. I mean, it's a place that has been bombed. There aren't enough bomb shelters. And he said, God has not always protected us, not on European soil and not on Ukrainian soil. And the ultra-Orthodox basically responded in the type of language that we haven't heard probably since the days of Jabotinsky. And everyone basically, well, certainly after Jabotinsky, but basically said that the Zionists were responsible for the Holocaust. It was this sort of apostasy and, you know, secularism and everything that brought this disaster upon the Jewish people in the first place. And anyway, really explosive rhetoric in Israel. And it's all, this is reality. This is part of the reality today. So these things are never far. It's probably, you know, a story that let's hope it sort of goes away and let's hope everybody goes on this pilgrimage and comes back safely. But it's very much with 
certainly Israel and, and Jewish people in general. You know, needless to say, the United States State Department issued a clear warning telling people not to travel there for Rosh Hashanah. And, and the reason why they travel is to pray at the grave of this rabbi who died in the early 1800s. He was born somewhere else in Ukraine, actually, but he died in Uman. And he asked his followers to be with him on Rosh Hashanah, not just in his life, but in his afterlife as well. So this is the, the reason for the pilgrimage. Maybe just like one or two sentences to Jonathan's comments on Zelensky, because what does it mean like 2019 when you have over 70% of people voting for a Jewish president in Ukraine? Kind of unheard of. And there is a good book now, Oksana Onich and Henry Hill, Zelensky Effect. And actually, they make the argument in this book that what's happening in Ukraine, what has happening, and we just like we did not notice from the outside, is that very quietly and with no big drumming, but a civic identity was taking shape in Ukraine. And the, the election of Zelensky, this is the fruit of that civic identity consolidating in Ukraine. And that made possible the election of somebody who not necessarily made a big thing of his Jewishness before. It was known that he's Jewish, but he's also like secular kind of. And then also Russian speaking. It's now that he is mostly speaking in uh, Ukrainian. But then the authors, they, they bring other like data and information that basically prove the point that in the last, you know, 30 years values, views in Ukraine changed. And the, the direction of change is exactly in this direction towards a, an identity that's more inclusive and that's more on the level of civic identity despite all their struggle to really consolidate a national identity based on ethnic terms. Before we go to Michael, just to say very quickly to, to people here and to listeners, you can listen to our interview with Olgonich about her book. I will put the episode in the show notes. I think we did it about a year ago now. But yeah, it's really fascinating. And she, she talks really movingly about this. Um, I can see Michael would like to come in. I just want to pick up on some of the themes that Diana mentioned, because the rapprochement between Ukrainian Jewry and this notion of uniting as part of Ukraine also reminds me of the resolution of Ukrainian-Polish conflicts because there was ethnic cleansing on both sides during and after World War II. But this current war has seemingly gone very far to resolve many of those long-standing historical tensions. The other thing I agree with is that the multi-ethnic society in Ukraine, which was caught between many countries, many great powers for hundreds of years, right? And even parts of what is contemporary Ukraine in, in Austria-Hungary, in Poland, uh, and then in Nazi Germany, in the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, there was this even the long-standing struggles to define where and what it is and how to create a state from the national movement, right? Well, what I want to say is that it depends how you define the Ukrainian nation, right? You can define it as ethnic Ukrainians only. You can define it even in racial terms if you're on the far right in the 20th century. But you can also define it as anyone who lives on the territory of Ukraine. This is what uh, Diana is saying about civic identity. And so, you know, you asked David about the last hundred years, and that almost exactly corresponds with the big pogroms of 1919, 
the depths of the World War II and the Holocaust. But as Diana is saying, there's also this history of the multi-ethnic borderlands where there's much more mixing than one might expect. And so there is another tradition to draw upon. And the other thing that I would, two points in the last hundred years, two historical moments. One would be the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 and the shift to the first expressions of official Soviet kind of anti-Semitism with the doctor's plot and late Stalinism. Early Soviet Union, in fact, Lenin was trying to get away from great Russian chauvinism, and it was actually a kind of a violation of party discipline and internal party rules to express anti-Semitism. This was not acceptable. This was politically incorrect in the early Soviet Union. And as a result of the restrictions of the former pale and many Jewish people rose up pretty high in the Soviet system in the interwar years, which reinforced this myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, of Jews and Bolshevism being together, because the other half, the entrepreneurial part of the Jewish population, was actually not an anti-capitalist, atheistic society, was not flourishing. But still, what happens then is you get that first expressions of anti-Semitism starting in late Stalinism, and that leads to restrictions against Jewish people entering higher education, higher positions. So there is this whole legacy that got, in a way, swept away with 1991. And then we see now this potential rise and consolidation of uh, civic nationalism. Jonathan Lincoln, you took us into the Israeli political world earlier there, talking about disagreements over the pilgrimage to Uman. Could you talk a little bit more about Israel? I mean, Michael's just mentioned the establishment of the Jewish state is one of the most consequential moments of the 20th century. Could you take us inside Israeli policy on Ukraine and Russia? What should we know as listeners about how are they even thinking about this in the first place? How do they approach this? What are their priorities? You know, obviously, there's a deep uh, history. We talked about, you know, these people from Ukraine, however, they identified themselves certainly as the founders of the state to a certain degree. But, you know, of course, we're talking about a population that has had a, a really outsized influence on the, I would say, social, economic and political life in Israel since, you know, the late 1980s, really, when the immigration from as Soviet Union was sort of falling apart. And then once it collapsed, I think that that is certainly an element today. It's more of a diverse population, I think, than probably most Israelis give it credit for. Because, of course, aside from, you know, perhaps Russians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, this includes pretty significant numbers also from Central Asia, you know, and particularly um, Uzbekistan as well, that have sort of participated in the broader political life and are also sort of caught up in the increasing debates now between the sort of what they term the ethnic genie, you know, these issues that have been dormant for quite a while for some, but part of the broader issue of the, you know, Ashkenazi sort of founding elite, of course, many, as we mentioned their names, you know, from places like Ukraine. But of course, some of these Jews from the former Soviet Union are not all Ashkenazi, of course, and some come from different backgrounds as well. So again, I think it's a, it's a far more diverse 
community than people give it credit for. But, you know, again, to also measure whether there's a real split, I don't think you see that. And the colleagues can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, you don't really see a sort of split between people more sympathetic with Russia and more sympathetic with Ukraine. I think, you know, in general, that there's general sympathy, at the very least, for the Ukrainian people and for the humanitarian situation, you know. And I think that now in this latest wave of immigration that Diana mentioned, it sort of is nothing to do with the waves of immigration that we saw in the late 1980s, where these people are now coming to a place where there is Russian language press, there's Russian language radio, television, you know, everybody knows Russian restaurants, you know, whatever that means. You can go to supermarkets, etc. So it's a far more friendly place. This isn't to make light of their plight or of the issues that they're going through, you know, as displaced and, and as refugees, of course. But I think it's a far different type of situation. But I think that the main issue really is the sort of geopolitical issue that Israel's facing, primarily related to Russia's own position as a player in the sort of broader Middle Eastern balance of power, certainly since 2015, if not, you know, slightly before, but also related to, you know, Israel's own security threats. And there's a lot written about it, but it's quite remarkable. This, as the Israeli security establishment calls it, the war between the wars, this campaign that's more or less been going on since after 2006, after the last war between Israel and Hezbollah, where Israel has been attacking Iranian and Iranian-backed interests in Syria, as well as the Syrian regime. And of course, all of this changes once Russia becomes a major component of this broader effort to prop up the Assad regime, pretty much after 2012, but, but specifically in 2015. And I think it's important to remember that Russia and Iran, regardless of what their relationship is like regarding the war in Ukraine, but Russia and Iran are strategic partners regarding preserving the Assad regime. And Israel has been and continues to, on an almost daily basis, hit Iranian targets, hit transfers of weapons from Iran to Hezbollah within Syrian territory, and it's widely understood that this is a result of a deconfliction agreement that they have with Russia regarding turning off the anti-aircraft system so that these attacks can take place. But it's also important to know that Russia does condemn these attacks diplomatically. And so there's a bit of a pantomime going on here because of also Russia's own concerns about Iran and Iran's role, perhaps outsized role in Syria in particular. But anyway, there's a lot to say about it and I don't want to go on too long, but this is a short piece of territory between there and the drone war in Ukraine and what's happening on the ground in the actual war. And this has caused Israel, despite the very rich history that we talk about, to take a cautious approach that not only seems to fly in the face of this history and emotional and, and, and intense history, but also very obviously its own relationship with the United States, which is you know an unprecedented one in terms of the weaponry and support that it receives. Earlier, you described its position regarding Ukraine as not entirely clear. Is that, is that? Yeah, I think that for now, there are certainly differences of opinion. And you see this in the statements. And if you look at 
the government before Netanyahu, you can see that you had Lapid, who had served as part of the agreement between him and, and Bennett, uh, served as prime minister for a period of time, was sort of unequivocal, certainly in his statements about condemning uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine. It sounded very similar to what you would hear in Europe and, 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 and in the United States. Bennett was a little bit more cautious and actually kind of in a strange episode, tried to set himself up as potentially a mediator. And, you know, in a very sort of well-publicized move, he even is a religious Jew. He violated the Sabbath to fly to Moscow to meet with Putin and then to meet with Zelensky, which is a huge deal because, of course, the only reason why you would be allowed to violate the Sabbath is if it was an attempt to save lives. So by invoking this notion of saving lives and potentially saving lives, he took it very seriously and he started this mediation. But I think that it was dismissed almost immediately as, as somewhat amateurish, I think, and perhaps maybe more nicely put wishful thinking on his part for all the reasons that were outlined today. But essentially, the policy is to give as much assistance as possible in the areas of civil defense, the type of weaponry for, in particular, anti-missile defense and the sort of famed Iron Dome system that has really been a game changer for Israel's security vis-a-vis -vis its own conflicts at Gaza and potentially what might happen on its northern border with Lebanon, that type of technology has not been transferred, nor has proper heavy weaponry. And whatever has gone has sort of gone from individuals and from individual companies. And essentially, they've been very clear. I, I'm not a weapons expert, so I don't know exactly what that red line is, just to sort of preempt your next question, maybe what that might be. But certainly there is a line that Israel isn't prepared to cross when it comes to this. And this is, you know, again, not just a source of tension with its main ally and supporter in the United States, but also the more emotional connection that Zelensky has. And that relationship has also been fraught because I think, you know, Diana will know he came to the Knesset and he, he invoked the Holocaust. He said what Putin is doing to the Ukrainians is like the Holocaust. It didn't go over well with a lot of Israeli politicians. Right. Yeah, um, it was a yeah. big division back then. Absolutely. Some of them cheered and others were like, yeah, it's a wrong yeah. comparison. Yeah, yeah. he, he, like, he yeah. overstepped the boundaries. Uh, that. that was the sense. I'll say that, yeah, indeed, Israel is there looking into like helping a, in whatever humanitarian way, also like medical help, especially with injured soldiers. There are a number, a huge number of injured soldiers, and they have very good medical facilities and the capacity to help those. And this is what they do, which is also an extremely important way of helping Ukraine these days. Yeah, but of course, Ukraine is upset. And it's very frequent that they criticize Israel and they try to shame and name Israel into doing more for them. And just like even several days ago, it was an agreement between the two ministries of culture, Israel and the Russian one, saying that they are signing an agreement about cooperation between cinema movie directors. And so it was some outcry in Israel when some people commented to the extent that, so what, now Israeli movie directors are going to learn from Russians how to do movies about Bucha that never happened. And recently there is one movie, Svidetel, 
the witness that is like pure propaganda that is made by the Russian state cinema. It's, it's an atrocious movie that we never seen anything like this before. So Ukrainians are upset. The officials are making like loud statements and some Israelis are upset as well. Michael and Marie, would you like to add your thoughts to what your colleagues have said? I think what Diana has said about cultural politics is important because we now have all of this war moving into the realm of culture. And so that's just one response, both within Russia, within Ukraine, and internationally. So that's just one observation. Two small points. First of all, I think the Israeli kind of equivocal position in this war kind of showcases the leftover influence that Russia is still able to project. And even larger, arguably, the problem is with the global south. And we've just seen recently, as a result of the summit of BRICS, right, that unfortunately we still have failed to create this paria, perception of, the, of Russia as being paria on the international stage, despite all the atrocities that have been committed. We've seen actually a list of countries applying to BRICS, more than 20 applied. I think they ended up selecting like five and with a particular role of the Middle Eastern countries. But essentially, this idea that I wanted to flag here is that unfortunately, Russia manages so far to retain this uh, position of uh, power that offers certain alternative, even if it's not winning in this war, necessarily it's not radically losing either. I'd like to see that the reality has actually been more on the ground, being more reflected in Russia's decline of the international status. And another quick point on the national liberation movement in Ukraine, how that essentially this intertwined civic and national identity. There's a conventional narrative in the West that nationalism is inherently bad. I think we see on example of Ukraine that when in moderation, it actually can be a, a force of good. And we've seen similar national liberalization movements as a result of the collapse of the Soviet system and communism actually also being this major defining factor towards move to embrace more of the Western European values on the side of the Central and Eastern Europe. So I just wanted to flag again that there's nothing inherently evil on the side of nationalism as long as it's not allowed to go that well, far. Well, definitely nationalists are good warriors, that we know. <laughs> No doubt about this. Historically, yeah. there have all been nationalism, then from left, liberal left to far right. So there are many different incarnations. Um, but yeah. I just want to flag the notion, the issue that there's a crisis in Israel politically that's very unprecedented and decisive. There's a crisis in the United States approaching 2024 where we can't pretend like this is not part of the mix here because depending on what happens in the election, support for the war in Ukraine might be dramatically shifted. So we're facing not just culturally but politically and geopolitically this whole intertwined global moment, right? And, and we're hurtling towards a, a number of inflection points. I've got a few questions for you. I mean, as you know, Jamie and I are visiting from the UK. And as you mentioned there, Michael, the US election, the presidential election next year could be a huge moment. What should listeners outside the US, how worried should they be? I guess it's the simple way of putting it in terms of support for Ukraine. What should we know? 
Well, you know, with the recent health scare with Mitch McConnell, who's a supporter of the war and the war effort, and there's bipartisan sort of consensus that has led to so much U.S. funding over the last two years, the Democratic Party was very concerned that no matter how much they've fought with Mitch McConnell, his far-right backbenchers, so to speak, will ruin many of the fragile consensus, especially on the war, but also on a number of other things, like keeping the government running, and, and sooner rather than later. So, I mean, I'm not an Americanist in terms of what I study. I'm not a political scientist. But I know uh, as a historian that when a political system reaches a point of disequilibrium, that many, many things can happen, and they can happen quite suddenly. And we have been in a situation of disequilibrium for some time. And rather than simply denounce what concerns Americans might fear about a possible second Trump presidency. I would point out one issue that's going to be important perhaps going forward into the presidential campaign, which is that right up till now, Joe Biden has said it will do whatever it takes as long as it takes for Ukraine. That sounds very reassuring to perhaps the European allies and Ukrainians, but to swaths of ordinary Americans who don't know much about Ukraine or perhaps could not find it on a map, they might be very worried that this signals another so-called forever war, which we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq, and in which the real situation was covered up by the military uh, and the media in part for many years. And so to address this notion that this is not an open-ended war that will last forever, but that it's important in the short term for these reasons to keep up the war effort, maybe come and add this to the list of things that concerned American citizens might want to see Joe Biden address. I wouldn't venture like to talk about like American politics. It's not my cup of tea. But it feels to me that the end of this war is not going to be solved by negotiations. At least like this is how it looks up until now. So it looks like the war is going to be decided on the battlefield. And if this is what will happen, I do hope that Ukraine will prevail because the winner is going to dictate the terms of peace. And God forbid if the winner is Russia and whoever's in charge probably should delivers the message to the American public and like make them understand what is at stake here and why is important to help on the battlefield that is important not just for the Ukraine but for all of us very far away from Ukraine today. And to follow what Diana just said, unfortunately, and that's one of the problems, I do not think this war is being sold to, for example, re Republican voters as being about them, right? I mean, we're kind of doing this effort, but probably not enough. Not a lot of people in the United States, at least on the right side of the spectrum, I think understand how existential this war for all of us. It's a war for liberal international order. If Ukraine is not successful, if Russia is allowed to so radically violate the international borders, right, then, of course, it creates the incentives for all other 
want to be dictators, perpetrators, etc., to commit something similar. And one concerning thing from the recent Republican debate was that beyond Trump, we see the emergence of other candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, embracing very similar agenda. And unfortunately, looking at the polls dynamic, it's visible that these narratives sell. And that is certainly very concerning since even if I don't really think there's a really high chance of Trump winning the next election, we will see, of course. There's such a thing about democracy that it is unpredictable, unlike Russia, where there is a very clear certainty who's going to be the winner. Nonetheless, I think what is concerning is that these narratives seem to be getting ground with the Pacific electorates. And I think that's why we may eventually see some erosion of support of Ukraine along the same lines that Michael pointed out. Another concerning factor for me is the fact that it's already visible from this war uh, that the cumulative uh, military capabilities of the e- European countries, the European allies and the United States, unfortunately, are hardly enough to counter Russia, to resist Russia's aggression in Ukraine. And they're by far not, therefore, enough if something happens with, for example, China. So you would think this situation should launch certain rethinking on the side of the military, right, and more investment in the military-industrial complex if we are taking our security issues seriously. But that is not what is happening, not even inside of the EU, although there are some promises that are being made, but there's still no radical rethinking in that regards of the Western security. That would require some radical change in the investment and the priorities. That is not happening either. And just to give you one small example, this is actually very important for how this war ends. Because unfortunately, as it looks like right now, looking at the ground, it's unlikely that Ukraine is going to be able to get all of the territory back. Right now, Russia controls about 20% of Ukraine's territory. And certainly we should, Ukraine, most of support. But uh, looking at the situation on the ground, it's just not very likely it's going to take back everything. So we are left with some sort of scenario, either like North or South Korea or Israeli-Palestine scenario. But in case of North South Korea, you need guarantors who will be credibly able to claim that, for example, Russia will not do it again against Ukraine and who is going to be that country to guarantee that, and particularly for Putin to agree on that, who is going to be that. I don't think Putin will agree to that even if China is willing to guarantee that. In case of Israeli scenario, then we need an armed border of Ukraine with enough missile defense systems to counter any potential Russian missile strike. And if you look at the cumulative number of missile defense systems in the West, it's probably Ukraine is a large country and has unfortunately a very large border. There's actually just not enough of those missile defense systems in the first place. So I'm sorry, what are we talking about? We don't even have enough weapons to sustain those solutions that we are offering. That's what I'm talking about when I'm calling for more proactive decision-making and more realistic discussions of what is possible on the ground in Ukraine. So far, unfortunately, I do not see that happening, but hopefully it will happen eventually. Sort of speaking as a multilateralist, maybe, and then as a Middle East expert, I think that there's an incredibly important message for Europe. I think that in the Middle East, there's been a little bit more experience with these massive shifts in U.S. policy between administrations over the years. And that, you know, a lot of the 
crisis in confidence between the U.S. and its Gulf allies, for example, has been what it did or didn't do after the Iraq war, its policies regarding Iran and the nuclear deal, you know, et cetera, abrogating the deal, then Biden trying to go back to it, you know, et cetera. So in a way, and not to give them too much credit and not to be too much of an apologist, but, you know, I do think that there are real sort of real politique reasons behind it. But I think that Israel and the global South's, you know, equivocating, as Maria said, is part partly an understanding that the United States might change its policies. And I think that this is maybe something that they've understood better than Europe has, because that's going to be the key issue moving forward. If there is a huge change in policy, what is Europe's position going to be? And it's overall the big issues since this change in the multilateral environment and the reliance and over-reliance, at least from the perspective of Washington, of Europe on American power. Well, thank you all for getting involved and really going as deep as we have done. The last thing I'll ask you all to do very, very briefly is just to sum up maybe one or two things you would want our listeners to take away from this, and then we'll open the floor for some questions. I think maybe what I want our takeaway to be is that what came to all of us as an extraordinary surprise is the resilience of Ukraine and the Ukrainian nation. Because, you know, when the war started, I think almost everybody was of the opinion that the war wouldn't be longer than whatever, maximum of a week or so. And look at us. It's amazing that Ukraine could put up such a strong defense. It gives us hope. And it's actually something unexpected. It's like magic that the Ukrainian nation and Ukrainian state showed such resilience and just like busted all our expectations. I'll add to that. And I'll say that one thing I'd like people to realize is what a long-term perspective on this war can add. And to go back to the theme we talked about, the loss of empire is very hard to swallow for many, many countries. And what it's led to in the case of Russia is this crystallization of a hard Putinism, a wartime Putinism that caused this aggressive war, but it has also in the long term led to a new phase in the long-term trajectory of Ukraine from an unlikely nation, right, to a national movement. I mean, of course, it had long-term roots uh, in terms of its rise, but now we've seen a consolidation of a civic nationalism, which is a new phase in Ukrainian history as well. So in both cases, the long-term perspective is that war is a catalyst for rapid change. To build on what Michael and Diana have said, Russia remains, unfortunately, the long-term security challenge to the West and the United States in particular. It's not going away. The resilience of Ukraine is absolutely remarkable, but we shouldn't be thinking that we won just because Ukraine has proven remarkably strong resilient. And we need to understand that Ukraine is really playing a huge price for our security as we speak. Russia remains still strong. The enemy of Ukraine is still strong and still potentially very threatening. And in order to challenge this, to counter the bear in the long term, I think we do need a much more proactive long-term strategy than what we currently have. As academics, I think it's important that we focus on the importance of history with regard to this conflict, especially when we're looking for solutions and a way out. But of course, things change. As we said, and, and identity, and especially in this part of the world that has seen so much 
suffering over the last hundred years. As we talked about, you know, identity is fluid. And we've also seen this somewhat in a microcosm of the Jewish experience, I think, and the sort of huge changes that we have today on the ground, the existence of Israel, the change in identity of the Jewish population in Ukraine for the most part. But also, as Maria just said, there's a lot at stake. Well, thank you, all of you. I can see lots of people were scribbling. So what I suggest is we just go around and choose one or two questions. Who would you like to go first? My name is Sammy. I'm a freshman in the college and interested in studying international relations and Spanish. And my question is for Michael. You mentioned how the war between Russia and Ukraine prematured in 2014 with Crimea. What preventative measures do you think, if there are any, they should have taken in 2014? And who do you think should have been taking them besides Ukraine? I think there was, of course, a big outcry in 2014, but there was an underestimation of what this meant for dealing with Putin's Russia, I guess. And so you have to recall that in the early 2000s, when Putin first came to power, there was a kind of a lot of cooperation, even and rhetorical cooperation and pragmatic cooperation from Putin and his government. And so there was a kind of lack of recognition that this was a big turning point, I guess. Now, you know, I'm not calling for any kind of military intervention. What I'm calling for is an understanding that a certain complacency can, in retrospect, have misled what we were dealing with. So I don't know if I have any policy recommendations but for what might have been done differently. But there was a lot of sweeping it under the rug and saying that this, you know, can be just managed and not really recognizing how things can be, can metastasize politically. And I think that's true in many parts of the world because you don't want to consider the worst case scenarios. It's easy to sweep things under the rug. Vaslansky, who studies nomenclature, is from the School of Nomenclature in the Soviet times, he describes the thinking of the Soviet elites, that the way they see the West is the West is very short-term selfish, and all these political leaders, they only think about their short-term gains, right? They don't really care about long-term issues, and the expectation is that the Soviet leadership that doesn't change, and there's no really election, will kind of always be able to outweigh the Western leadership and get the policies that they want because Biden will always be gone or there will be some other changes, right? And I think that Putin very much inherits the same type of thinking. And in some ways, he's not wrong for the reasons that Michael flagged. Among the things that we could have done at the very least back in 2014 is to introduce far stronger sanctions design than what has been done. The sanctions had been really very symbolic and the, the ones of them which weren't symbolic were only introduced when Russian-backed separatists hit the MH17 Malaysian Boeing, not after Crimea was annexed, which alone was the major violation of the international law. So at the very least, we could have started there. I'm a master's student in Russian area studies at Georgetown. We've talked a lot about Putin as an amateur historian with kind of these grandiose imperialist ideas. And he's someone who seems to think in on a more historical scale with a long-term view for his machinations. Um, Putinism, we've identified, has integral ideas of Russian exceptionalism. And we've bounded thus far Putinism to the state and elites. Obviously, this war is going to be a struggle of national identity, a formative national struggle for the Ukrainians, but it's definitely going to have a great effect on Russian national identity. And so 
after the initial failure of the full-scale invasion, is this war being framed by Putin as an opportunity to redefine Russian identity on his terms, on Putinist terms, and really embed ideals of imperialism and Russian exceptionalism among everyday Russians? And since he thinks on this grander scale, is this going to be a shift in the footprint of Putin in history from the savior of the 90s and, you know, someone who kept Russia geopolitically relevant in the aughts and tens to someone who has reshaped what it means to be Russian for the coming decades and maybe even centuries? That's a brilliant question. Certainly, the dangers are exactly as you described them. And for the reasons that we have also discussed, because Russia is now dissociated from the West entirely, and any support for Ukraine as any, well, intent, self-conscious person would probably experience, right, immediately positions you in a position to Russians domestically, which means that for Russian liberals, it's very hard to find this narrative that at the same time does not fully present them as enemies in the eyes of their own society, while at the same time not becoming horrible predators in the, in the eyes of the world. I've se- I think you've seen a lot of the scandals last year with a lot of that them have to do with the fact that the Russian liberals who at the, in the past, right, represented, tried to represent this alternative, chance at alternative Russian, Western, more pro-Western, more European identity, they are now totally failing to find this middle ground, this narrative that would be able to simultaneously counter Putin's war narrative, like anti-Westernism, everybody's against us, we should be united together, great again, while at the same time not being seen as being, you know, just another extension of Russian imperialism abroad. That's a huge problem, and it actually was already up obvious in 2014, when through the same uh, sequence of events, Putin essentially was able to break down Russian nationalists. Some of them were civic nationalists, and effectively they were unable to find the narrative that would uh, be able to keep this liberal orientation. They were split. Some thought that it's great that Russia is getting Crimea back. Others thought, few, the majority of them thought it was wrong, but they couldn't manage with it. And effectively, they exiled and disappeared. Nobody really hears about them anymore, those who weren't arrested uh, by the Putin regime. So yes, certainly, that's the big victory for Putin. And that's one of the reasons why I personally think this is likely to stay there. There's just no uh, obvious way to challenge this narrative domestically. Add to that Russia's tendency to have so-called blind patriotism. That's in line with statism. Everything that the state does is not supposed to be criticized. It's like the state does it and therefore it's true. When it comes to the grandeur, like great power narratives, it's not necessarily the case as to when it comes to day-to-day interactions, but at the higher level, that's the case. So yes, we are discussing ways in which this may be changed, but for now, it's not very clear how this can be altered. So indeed, and that's what why we always say that catastrophe not just is a tragedy for Ukraine, maybe a catastrophe for Russia, because Russia effectively is dissociating itself from this more pro-European path that was taken before. And the challenge, ironically, is likely to emerge on the size of ethno-nationalists in Russia, who, like Prigozhin did, will be saying, hey, Putin is doing everything right, but he's corrupt and he's not doing it well enough. Like, and essentially, in some ways, it's an arrival of Hitler after a Weimar Republic. So the scenario is by far, except that this time is going to be nuclear Hitler. <laughs> so I want you to sleep well at night. So I don't think it's a very likely scenario. But unfortunately, the possibility is there. And that's very concerning for sure. I would add a few less pessimistic and potentially more optimistic just considerations. right? Because again, I don't like to predict the future. But what I do know 
is, well, first, when I looked at Putin's speeches, there were a lot of delusions of grandeur in his excursions into Russian Ukrainian history, as if through his actions, he could correct the mistakes of history that Lenin had made, for example, in the creation of Soviet Ukraine. And now, of course, they're redoing the whole educational system to support the war. And the Soviet Union had one of the most effective censorship systems in the world. It had one of the most systematic ideological establishments in the world, much more systematic than, say, in in far-right countries, like fascist countries. And yet, even so, many, many Soviet citizens had all sorts of views about history that did not at all correspond with the official line, right? So I am skeptical about the potential to simply remake things so easily. And the other consideration, right, Maria is talking about a situation in which Putinism is sort of entrenched for the long term. But as we talked about, things can also change on a dime. And another consideration is that in both imperial Russian and Soviet history, there were cycles of reform and reaction. And the reform always came because structurally and internationally, Russia and the Soviet Union needed to catch up and were not competing internationally. And there were intense needs for rounds of change and reform. And that is another possible scenario, right? So we simply don't know yet. And I would also add one last thought, because we talked about unexpected disequilibria and so forth. When you have these turning points in history, Things can go many different ways, and that's where contingency comes into play. And then whatever happens, people look back and find the deep roots of it. But we simply don't know. There may be a new round. Inevitably, there has to be a new round of of change in Russia, a new round of reform, especially with oil and gas going out the window in a few years with changes in the world energy markets. I mean, Russia is going to be facing severe constraints, and those pressures for reform will be even greater. Now, it's hard to see that right now, but it's one potential possibility. My name is Jeffrey Berger. I'm a senior auditor at uh, Georgetown. My question is, when the war first started, there was great concern in the United States about Putin and using nuclear weapons. And then we started providing some HIMARS, and then it went to tanks, and now F-16s. And each time, there was concern that Putin would do something. But He really hasn't. And the question is, on the podcast, we constantly hear that Putin uh, threatens a lot, but that he's really not going to stand behind it and that the Ukrainians won't be able to gain ground past the uh, deep Russian fortifications unless they have air cover. So what is your view on what the United States might do, what Putin might do, and how it will all sort out? That's probably no response to the question. This is why it's exactly 
what you describe, this is the policy. Very gradually, step by step, kind of giving bits of this and that, kind of testing the ground. And of course, there is like pushback from Russia. And then like wait and like give something else. You see how the political establishment is behaving because I think they also, they don't have a response because the, the, the question you're asking is like, how would Putin behave? And nobody knows. We do know that Putin is threatening to use a nuclear bomb. And some people may be tempted to believe that he's bluffing. But what if not? And there are a number of people who believe that he's not bluffing. So there is no scientific response to this. This is why you have a very piecemeal policy on the ground in like steps and, and increase help, support to Ukraine. And all countries are doing, both, of course, because of the internal audience, because this one should be convinced as well in expending more money, giving more weaponry, but of course, because of Putin himself. Psychologically, I mean, Russia engaged in so much nuclear saber rattling at the beginning that it's sort of lost currency. He didn't use it then. He's not going to use it. And why would he use nukes in his own backyard is another question. However, when you look at the history of the Cold War and how those nuclear crises, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was then post hoc extensively discussed on both sides, how close the world came it was is very scary thing. So again, it's a it is one of the million dollar question, right? Uh, this is where I actually don't fully agree with my esteemed colleagues. Finally, we find some point of disagreement. I actually think that last year and a half have shown us that Putin easily backed down. He doesn't have an issue with backing down. And actually, I had an article even before uh, last uh, June showing that that was the case even in Syria and Libya. There were clashes with even U.S. forces of Wagner, for example. And remember when uh, even Trump hit uh, some of the barracks in which allegedly Russian troops were stationed that were informed in advance, and nothing like that happened. So I think this fear is often used as an excuse for the Western political leadership to exercise caution for reasons other than that Putin immediately was going to use nukes. The biggest example is his desire to occupy Kiev, right, and install a new leadership in Ukraine. How did that work out for him? He had to back down and actually radically revise his goals into something really marginal as compared to the original goals still without using nukes, right? If you if you thought that he was so committed and resolute, if there was a moment for him to use nukes, that would be back then. Because really he failed to, he realized he can't really fully control Ukraine and de facto in on the strategic level, he lost back then. And yet he revised, you know, refocused. The Russian army actually learned a lot. You can see it on the ground. They're not stupid. They're learning. And actually are now focused on much more limited tactical advantages in Ukraine. Doesn't mean that the strategic goal is entirely gone. But we see that Putin easily backs down when he needs to, and it's not such a big deal. We see the same pattern with the provision of weapons. Every time the U.S., for example, decides to provide a HIMARS or ATACOMS, as where the discussion is right now, there's always this uh, new wave of concerns. Oh, my God, this is it. This is it. This is the red line for Putin is going to use the nukes. But we've been already through that same cycle for the last maybe at least five, six times. I think it's time for us to learn that maybe Putin 
is flexible with his red lines. I'm not saying that the concern of him using the nukes is totally out of the window. I think we need to be cautious. I also think that we shouldn't be too cautious and we should be learning from what we are seeing on the ground. And we see on the ground that Putin does back down and he has no problem of leaving a lot of the parts of Ukraine, even those that are technically now Russia, as we have seen after those referendums last fall. So I think those concerns are a little bit over-exaggerated. And the reasons why we see like this pro protracted action on the side of the West is best explained by the logic of bureaucracy, where, you know, as uh, Diana pointed out, first of all, there is democratic aspect. In Germany, for example, the public is still divided when it comes to weapons provision. Then uh, there's consistently, they, they're facing certain incompatibilities between different types of weapons. Then something is not ready. Then there is also strategic consideration that the U.S., for example, doesn't want to leave parts of its geographic areas without the important arms by relocating them into Ukraine. And most importantly, nobody wants to incur the cost associated to the radical increase of the defense capabilities of the West. That's something I mentioned before. So I think this dynamic is best explained by this bureaucratic logic. Unfortunately, for Ukraine, it does not mean any good news anytime soon, because this logic is going to be there to stay. Could I just add very quickly two things to that? One is, I mean, what you said about Putin being flexible in his strategy and his aims and his goals, that's exactly what Serhii Plokhi said, the esteemed Ukrainian historian who's been writing about this, this war. He, he talks about how in the beginning it was regime change, now it's just keep the bits we've got. And from Putin's perspective, there's little cognitive dissonance thinking that. And just to add to your point about we see Putin backing down quite a lot, think of the expansion of NATO. I mean, it was one of the reasons given was to prevent for the war is to prevent Ukraine joining NATO, and it's all NATO's fault for expanding eastward. And what, what have we seen in the past 18 months? But two countries with fantastic militaries, NATO is probably now stronger than it's ever been, Finland and Sweden, joining NATO. What was the Russians' response to that? Almost nothing. They couldn't do anything because all of its fighting prowess and all of its fighting forces are down in, are down in Ukraine. Sweden has got a, a, a very, very, very capable air force, and Finland, remember, has national service. They're a formidable armed force. That's a geopolitical loss for Putin, and, it, and it, again, there's very little cognitive dissonance. Jonathan, is there anything you wanted to add to this? Or shall we go to another question? I mean, just a little bit out there, but we're talking about these red lines. I'm just thinking about, you know, that historically the United States has been bad at reinforcing red lines, at least uh, the last couple of administrations. And I think that in a way, part of this discussion about the nuclear option is the U.S. red line, which is not to get troops involved on the ground. That would be the ultimate disaster, you know, from the American perspective, of course, and what happens? We keep upping the ante, as you said, tanks, now F-16s, you know, what's next? And so where does it lead, especially if the war just continues and drags on? There's a deep history to that American approach. But, uh, so. also want to add the perspective of, you know, I'm from Moldova, from Kishinev. So when somebody in Washington is speaking about like, yeah, let's risk it because Putin, maybe he won't use it. But you're in Kishinev, which is like 100 kilometers from Odessa. And if they drop a bomb on Ukraine and then drop another one on Moldova and another one on Estonian, yeah, it is really scary. It is really scary for everybody who is there. And they do talk about like different types of nuclear weapons. Of course, there are some that can reach DC, but there are other different like smaller range nuclear weapons. And they would start probably with those. And like, it's clear that some people and some neighbors are more concerned than others. Like, yeah, it's understandable that, you know, there are different perceptions on the ground. 
Hi, my name is Marita Masahina. I'm a Georgetown freshman in the School of Foreign Service. And my question actually will be more about the memory diplomacy integration. Uh, we talked a little bit about like erosion of support of Ukraine, especially in the West in these days. So maybe you can develop a little bit more why public diplomacy does not work to the full extent, especially as we can see it in the scenario with uh, Republicans in America. I just make an observation, which is when the incredible wave of support across political spectrum in the U.S. when the war broke out was in part based because this was a kind of really easy narrative for the media. There was David and Goliath, there was an unprovoked aggression, and there was a history. The Cold War reinforced a lot of willingness to think the worst about Russia, and so this played upon a fertile ground. And to make the case for a much longer open war, you have to, as was said before, make the stakes clear. And I think people have been talking about it, but it doesn't get that same resonance. So, you know, there's a strong streak of also isolationism in U.S. popular opinion and historically speaking. So unfortunately, I think that maintaining those extremely high levels of support is very, very difficult to do. Just to jump in, I wouldn't take at face value some of the opposition as having anything to actually do with the reality on the ground. I think it's very much a part of the overall conversation in the United States about the economy, about people's own suffering in the United States. And here, look what Biden is doing. He's focusing on this thing, you know, another situation where the Europeans can't handle themselves and are creating this war. And now we're going to have to send our boys over there to sort it out, just like we did in Iraq, and it didn't work, and people died in Afghanistan, what for, you know, I mean, I think this is this is very powerful. So don't underestimate that. But you know, it's, it's not just about necessarily sympathy for the Ukrainian people. My name is Mikhail. I'm a graduate student at the series program. I was curious about the growing relationship between Russia and Iran. One of the panelists mentioned that they had a strategic relationship in many spheres of influence and in the Middle East vis-a-vis anti-Western sentiment. So I was wondering whether the growing relationship in the military technology sector is a concern or a long-term concern for Israel or Western countries, especially when it comes to Russian influence in the Middle East and Russia's war in Ukraine. I mentioned Russia and Iran's strategic partnership in in preserving the Assad regime. That's clear. Now, beyond that, of course, there's this newfound relationship and technologies, weapons, and, 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 and things like that. But the whole nature of the deconfliction arrangement with Israel implies a certain level of discomfort that Russia has with Iran being too powerful on the ground, especially in Syria. And so that's something that, you know, again, this is not about Iran and, and, and an Iranian agenda, which, you know, could then end up together with Hezbollah, IRGC units based in Syria, you know, starting a, a, a massive war with Israel. That's not something that Russia is necessarily interested in. Well, I'll just add to that that we certainly see very concerning growing collaboration between Iran and Russia when it comes to military technologies exchange. Iran is building like new factories in Russia, producing drones and other technologies. And certainly this is one major issue of concern because that's how Russia probably is going to be able to sustain this war. Thank you so much, Jonathan, Maria, Diana and Michael. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.